0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road. the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space plus available tech like wireless charging you and your entire crew can stay connected or check out a stylish and comfortable highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof you can sit back enjoy the wide open views with your whole family plus both rav4s and highlanders are available in hybrid models so no matter your style You can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, That's audible.com slash WonderyPod. Or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
2: If you want to visit the front lines in the fight against ISIS, there are few places better than Jordan. Its leader, King Abdullah, says he understands Islamic terrorism better than America ever has. In fact, he says we're in a third world war. How
3: do you move forward from here? I think the problem with the West is they see a border between Syria and Iraq. And we say, for God's sake, ISIS doesn't work that way. So if you're looking at it and want to play the uh, the game by your rules, knowing that the enemy doesn't, we're not going to win this.
4: Within the last two years, B-52s like this one, capable of delivering 20 nuclear weapons, have begun sending a message directly to Russia, flying missions not seen since the Cold War. 80 cruise missiles in your face. It's a lot of firepower. Was that the message? That's a message. It was an unmistakable warning. But there is real concern in the U.S. military that Russia might be willing to use a nuclear
5: weapon.
6: I think to them the use of nuclear weapons is not unthinkable.
5: How did 271 pieces by Pablo Picasso, worth close to $100 million end up in his handyman's garage for 40 years. That's what Pablo Picasso's son is trying to find out.
7: The explanations were a bit murky, but I quickly understood that they must have stolen them. Did you know immediately that they were real? Yes.
5: Tonight, the story of the missing Picassos and the only two characters, and we mean characters, who
2: know the truth. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm David Martin. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on the 49th season premiere of 60 Minutes.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: The bombs in New York and New Jersey last week brought the specter of terror home again. It seems no country is safe, but there is one that is beating fearsome odds. ISIS burned through Syria and Iraq until it hit a firewall, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. The king, Abdullah II bin al-Hussein, is holding the front and sheltering millions of refugees. Despite his struggling economy no oil wealth, and precious little water. If the king can keep his balance, Jordan may prove that an Arab state can remain peaceful, tolerant, and modern. The arsonists torching the Middle East hope to see him fail. This is not war. These are Jordanian forces sharpening their edge on a make-believe town. Some of their weapons are antique, attack helicopters designed originally for Vietnam, surplus armored cars that they found online. Jordan can't afford the arsenals of its neighbors. Skill is its advantage. And to hone it, they switched in training from blanks to live ammunition. This is the soldier who ordered that switch. He's the former head of Special Forces. He is Abdullah II, the King of Jordan. Why live ammo, we shouted. Everyone uses blanks, makes no sense, he yelled. There's no sense in anything less than lethal. Because no King of Jordan... Has ever known peace. This is the mosque that you built in honor of your father. Yeah. Abdullah became king in 1999 on the death of his father, who ruled 47 years. We met the 54 year old at his palace in Amman. He knows ISIS by its Arabic acronym, DASH. But whatever you call it, he says the West doesn't realize it's in a
3: third world war. I think this is the challenge that we've had over the past several years, where people look at, you know, is it Iraq this year or Syria next year? Well, what about Libya? What about Boko
2: Haram or Shabab in, in Africa? We have to look at it from a global perspective. All of these things need to be attacked at the same time. You can't concentrate on Syria one year and then deal with Boko Haram well, in another. The, the prime example is, as you see
3: certain military
2: successes in Syria and
3: Iraq against Daesh, um, the leadership, they're telling their fighters uh, either don't come to Syria or Iraq or moving their command structure to Libya. Um, And so are we going to wait to get our act together to to concentrate on Libya? Um, And then, you know, do we wait a year or two to start helping the Africans deal with Boko Haram or Shabaab? So we've got to get ahead of the curve um, because they're um, reacting much quicker than, than we are.
2: The American strategy in Syria and Iraq, as you know, is to use U.S. air power and to train forces on the ground to fight the battle. That has not worked. How do you move forward from here?
3: I think the problem with the West is they see a border between Syria and Iraq. Dash does not. Uh, and this has been a frustration, I think, for a few of us in this area with our Western coalition partners for several years. Um, you know, the, the lawyers get into the act and say, but there's an international border. And we say, for God's sake, ISIS doesn't work that way. So if you're looking at it and want to play the, the, uh, the game by your rules, knowing that the enemy doesn't, we're not going
2: to win this. Jordan says it has flown more than 1,000 missions against ISIS in Syria in coordination with the U.S., Last year, pilot Muath Qasasbe was captured. ISIS put him in a cage and made a video as they burned him alive. At the time, Abdullah had two terrorists in jail. Within hours of that video, you hanged two convicted terrorists here in Jordan. What does that tell us about you? I think they had to understand
3: that there was no messing around with Jordan. And a lot of those that were involved in killing Wad in that video uh, and those that were responsible for detaining him and uh, processing him through um, his captivity uh, have been taken down since.
2: He's taking down each and every one in the video. You're going to hunt them down?
3: Uh, They uh, have been uh, hunted down, quite a lot of them. um, And those that are still involved, um, if it takes us another 50 years, we'll get them.
2: Those are the rules of his neighborhood. Abdullah reigns over a desert the size of Indiana. To his west, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. North, Syria's civil war. East, ISIS in Iraq. And south, severe fundamentalist Islam in Saudi Arabia. It is a collision of tribes and religions not confined by borders drawn with a British T-square and crossed by American tanks. In 1990... King Hussein warned George Bush to stay out of Iraq in two thousand and three. The son of the king gave the son of the president the same advice. It seems like American presidents think they know this region better than you
3: They seem to understand us better than than we know each other, and as a result, um, you can see the train on the track coming to the uh, to the wreck and and we, we do advise that if we keep going that way, it's pretty obvious to some of us what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, you can only express your views as much and as emotionally as you can. You're frustrated by that? The ethnic makeup of the region is pretty glaringly obvious for us that live in, in the region. But advisers and think tanks uh, in the West seem to know us better than we supposedly know ourselves. I mean, uh, Syria. Um, when it started, everybody was saying six months, and I said, "Look, you know, if you're saying six months, I'm saying six years. We're in for the long haul, not only in Syria and Iraq, but." For the whole region and for the world, unfortunately.
2: But isn't there going to have to be a Western army of some kind on the ground in order to take e- enablers, the territory?
3: Enablers, because at the end of the day, um, you can't have uh, Western troops walking down the street of Syrian cities and villages. Um, at the end of the day, you need the Syrians to be able to do that.
2: We were on the Syrian border in 2014 as the king's soldiers reached out to refugees. He welcomed them. Even though there were already more than 2 million Palestinian refugees who've been in Jordan for decades. Why did you allow nearly a million and a half Syrians to come into your country?
3: Well, uh, we, we really didn't have much choice. I mean, they were um, uh, flooding across the border, being shot by the Syrian regime. Um, and, uh, you know, Jordan has always been a, a place that opened its arms to. Uh, refugees from many countries unfortunately. Uh, but then it got to a point where you know we're now at twenty percent increase of our population. Um, and the huge burden on our country
2: uh we're in dire straits. Most of them are in Jordanian towns looking for work, driving up rents. One hundred and sixty thousand Syrian kids are in Jordan schools. What's the breaking point for your people
3: <laughs> about a year or two two years ago? Unemployment is skyrocketing, our health sector is uh, um, is saturated, our schools um, uh, are really going through difficult times. It's extremely, extremely difficult, and Jordanians have just have had it up to here. I mean, we just can't take it anymore.
2: They've had it, with unemployment near 15%, and that's the official rate. It's probably higher. There are more than 9 million people living in Jordan, and half are under the age of 24.
3: If anything keeps me up at night, it's, it's giving the younger generation an opportunity at life. Um, and on the flip side of that, uh, if radicalization is going to embed itself anywhere in the world or in this region, um, it's going to be uh, disenfranchised youth. And so if young people in, in this country are not going to have an opportunity because of the pressure on the economy, um, again, that's my concern.
2: He showed us his concern at a multi-million-dollar campus built to be his new military headquarters. The king, who drives his own car, by the way, took this campus away from the generals and converted it to a citadel of software, a business park for technology. Imagine these logos on the Pentagon.
3: I believe uh, the world has a stake in the Jordanian economy because uh, we are the success story of stability in the region. If there wasn't a Jordan, we would have had to have created one. Um, so I think um, the, the story of Jordan is, is bigger than, than the borders of our, of our country.
2: His borders began in 1916 when Abdullah's great-great-grandfather led the revolt depicted in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. The king traces his bloodline directly to the prophet Muhammad. Islamic extremists, he told us, are outlaws that the faith has dealt with before. When you do interviews in Arabic on this subject, you call ISIS the Hawarish. What does that mean? Well, um, in uh, Islam, uh, us
3: traditional Muslims, uh, it is not our right to call people heretics. Um, uh, God decides. Um, at the end of the day. Um, the jihadists take it upon themselves to call the rest of us heretics. Um, us Muslims, uh, <laughs> you're in a completely different and worse category. Um, and so, so uh, in our traditional history, um, the outlaws, the khawarij, appeared really in the early part of, of, of Islam. They were a sect That splintered from Islam in the first century. Uh, Yes, um, and they did horrible atrocities. uh, And as a result, um, um, uh, the Muslim communities rose up against them and and exterminated them. So they appear throughout history um, uh, from time to time. And uh, uh, they always uh, meet their end. But as extremists um, throughout all of our religions, uh, you know, they appear from time to time.
2: Well, in the United States, many people ask, what has gone wrong with Islam? Well, so if you look at the spectrum
3: and understand that 90% of us are are traditionalists and and have an affinity for uh, Christianity, Judaism, I mean, we're all the three monotheistic religions, us being the younger one, and that our faith decrees the understanding of Judaism and Christianity, then we understand where we all are. It's that misperception with um, the, the tekfiri jihadists, that's where the fight is. And they represent probably 2% of of Sunni Islam. That's where the problem is. And if we're being pushed into the corner uh, through Islamophobia, that's where the danger is, where we as allies are are not understood.
2: Your concern is that if Islamophobia takes even greater hold, Muslims who are not radicalized today... Will be
3: forced into that corner. Well, they're going to f- feel uh, isolated. They're going to feel marginalized. They're going to feel that uh, victimized, uh, which is exactly what um, ISIS, Al Qaeda want. I mean, you know, why fly two aircrafts into uh, the Twin Towers in New York? Is to create hatred from the West towards Islam, so that you can panic uh, the majority of Muslims to feel that they're victimized and push them over into the extremist
2: camp. Pressure on the king is rising that explosion, an ISIS bomb in June, killed seven Jordanian soldiers. Abdullah closed the Syrian border. In 2014, it looked like this. Now, with the crossing closed, only the long arm of the UN is lifting aid over the line to nearly 100,000 trapped refugees. Jordan says that ISIS has infiltrated the camp on the Syrian side. But even so, the kingdom has just agreed to set up food and water distribution for those who are stranded. After obliterating that mock town with his former unit, the king whispered to us, God, I miss my old job. The crown of a prince was lighter when he only had to deal with ancient armor. He told the men, Our equipment and vehicles are lacking. We will develop them as soon as we can. Long live the king, they yelled. Long live the king. You wonder how the kingdom has lived so long with peril on every side. But maybe that's the key. Treacherous borders are like live rounds in training. They raise the stakes. Jordan endures because the price of failure is much too high.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: President Obama's nuclear strategy states that while the threat of all-out nuclear war is remote, the risk of a nuclear attack somewhere in the world has actually increased. When that was written three years ago, the risk came from a rogue nation like North Korea. Back then, the U.S. and Russia were said to be partners. But that was before Russia invaded Crimea, using military force to change the borders of Europe and before its president, Vladimir Putin, and his generals began talking about nuclear weapons. For generations, nuclear weapons have been seen as a last resort to be used only in extreme circumstances. But in this new Cold War, the use of a nuclear weapon is not as unlikely to occur as you might think. Air-launched cruise missiles being loaded onto a long-range B-52 bomber at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. When you see it close up, it's it's even bigger than you think it is.
8: It is an impressive machine, um, about 185,000 pounds empty, but it's built to carry weapons and gas.
4: Major General Richard Clark commands all of this country's nuclear bombers. And these are the weapons? Yes, sir.
8: These are air-launched cruise missiles. Um, It is the primary nuclear weapon for the the B-52.
4: Clark told us these are training missiles, so they're not armed with nuclear warheads. The B-52 can carry 20 cruise missiles, six under each wing and eight in the bomb bay. So this is the rotary launcher
8: and it holds eight air launch cruise missiles within the internal bomb bay of the B-52. It's a tight fit but the way it works is the launcher rotates, allows the weapon to uh, release and send it on its way.
7: So it's like the
4: chamber of a revolver.
8: Same idea, just much bigger bullets.
4: As the most visible arm of the American nuclear arsenal, these bombers are meant to send a message to an international audience.
8: We can put this aircraft
4: anywhere we want,
8: anytime we want, and both our allies and our adversaries take note.
4: This is basically a a nuclear show-and-tell.
8: It's not just a show-and-tell, because it will deliver.
4: Within the last two years, B-52s have begun sending that message directly to Russia flying missions not seen since the Cold War. It started after Vladimir Putin changed history by invading an independent country, Ukraine, and seizing its Republic of Crimea.
6: The fact that military force would be used to change an internationally recognized border in the central part of Europe, that was new.
4: Now retired, General Philip Breedlove was the supreme allied commander in Europe when Russia took over Crimea. The invasion was carried out by so-called little green men, Russian soldiers wearing uniforms without insignia. But looming in the background were nuclear weapons. Was there ever any indication that Vladimir Putin was prepared to use his nuclear weapons in any way?
6: Vladimir Putin said himself that he considered um, raising the alert status of his nuclear force. He had considered it. He said it himself. Putin
4: said he had given an order to his military to be prepared to increase the readiness of his nuclear forces if the U.S. and NATO tried to block his takeover of Crimea. We were not looking for a fight, Putin said in this interview, but we were ready for the worst case scenario.
6: They see nuclear weapons as a normal extension of a conventional conflict. So to them nuclear war is not unthinkable? I think to them the use of nuclear weapons is not unthinkable.
4: It says so in their military doctrine signed by Putin in 2014. Russia shall reserve the right to use nuclear weapons in the event of aggression when the very existence of the state is in jeopardy. Putin has personally directed nuclear exercises which have increased in both size and frequency, according to Breedla
6: More threatening? Certainly they get your attention. More aggressive? Clearly and the
4: U.S. responded with more aggressive exercises of its own. One year after Crimea, four B-52s flew up over the North Pole and North Sea on an exercise called Polar Growl. The B-52s were unarmed, but that little fin on the side of the fuselage identified them as capable of carrying nuclear weapons.
6: What I applauded here Are the two routes for these uh, planes? Hans
4: Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, used Google Earth to show us the message that sent Russia.
6: But each bomber can carry 20 cruise missiles, a maximum of them. So we're talking about potentially 80 cruise missiles that could have been launched against targets uh, inside Russia at this particular time.
4: Using the cruise missile's range of 1,500 miles, Christensen plotted his own hypothetical lines showing how far they could potentially reach into Russia. And the endpoints of those uh, red lines?
6: Yes. Each of them go to a facility in Russia that could be a potential target for nuclear weapons.
4: The Russians would look at that and see it as a, a dry run for an attack on targets inside Russia.
8: I guess they can draw the conclusions that that they need to draw.
4: Haiti cruise missiles in your face.
8: It's a lot of firepower.
4: Was that the message?
8: That's a message for sure.
4: The last time American nuclear bombers flew a mission like that was during the Cold War. This was a a significant
8: exercise for us. We're training the way we might have to fight.
4: It was an unmistakable warning, but Rear Admiral Steve Perot says there's no indication the Russian military has changed its thinking about nuclear weapons.
9: uh, Disturbingly, in recent years, there have been specific uh, doctrinal and public statements made by other Russian leaders that indicate an evolved willingness to employ nuclear weapons in the course of conflict.
4: As Director of Intelligence for the U.S. Strategic Command, Perode spent the last two years gauging Russia's nuclear intentions.
9: I think that they feel that fundamentally the West is sociologically weaker. And if they were to use a nuclear weapon in the course of a conflict between, say, NATO and Russia, they might be able to shock the Western powers into de-escalating, into freezing the conflict, uh, calling a ceasefire.
10: So they have a belief that they're just tougher than us. No, that's definitely true. And if they have to use nuclear weapons. We can't, we can't take it. I think that some people might think that.
4: Perot is not talking about the Armageddon of an all-out nuclear war, which neither side could win, but the limited use of a few nuclear weapons which could convince the U.S. to back down.
10: So how would they uh, shock us into... Surrender. They could
9: strike a European target with a nuclear weapon, uh, maybe an airfield that they thought was vital to a conflict between NATO and Russia. We're
2: looking at uh, H-hour. We're looking at the the moment before the conflict starts. David
4: Schlepak of the RAND Corporation directed a series of war games commissioned by the Pentagon in which Russia invaded the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia, two of the newer members of NATO. And because of their location on the Russian border, Two of the most vulnerable.
11: When the fight starts, the Russians have about 400 to 500 tanks on the battlefield. NATO has none.
4: The red chips represent Russian forces. The blue and white are NATO. The relative size of those stacks kind of says it all. It does. It does. This is is
2: not a happy picture for, for NATO.
4: As the scenario unfolds, Russian forces in red are storming the capitals of Estonia and Latvia.
2: They can get there between a day and a half and two and a half days, 36 to 60 hours.
4: To retake Estonia and Latvia, the U.S. and NATO would have to conduct a major buildup of military forces to drive
2: the Russians out. One of the things you would expect Russia to do would be to begin rattling the nuclear saber very aggressively. To say, we're here, this is our territory now, and if you come and try to take it away from us, we will escalate. Escalate. Use nuclear weapons. Use nuclear weapons.
4: Russia has more than 1,000 short-range nuclear weapons, while the U.S. has less than 200 at air bases in Europe. There's one in uh, Germany. The locations of American nuclear weapons are officially secret. But here's what they look like. Hans Christensen says he discovered this photo on a U.S. Air Force website showing the inside of a shelter where nuclear bombs would be loaded aboard American and NATO jet fighters.
6: Each vault can have up to four nuclear bombs. They hang right next to each other. It can, it sinks into the ground with the weapons, levels completely with the surface. And then
4: just straight out of a doomsday movie,
6: the the nuclear weapon rises out of the floor?
4: Right. The bomb is called the B-61, and it's being upgraded by adding a new set of tail fins that give it greater accuracy. That would allow the B-61 to destroy its target using a lower-yield nuclear weapon, which would decrease the number of civilian casualties. Well, the air launch cruise say, missile, says Major General Clark, uh, compared to can also be turned into a low-yield nuclear weapon.
8: There is a variable le- yield option on this weapon, so we can change that yield um, within the weapon. You can dial in a yield? That's what we call it, actually, dial a yield.
4: Does that make a nuclear weapon easier to use?
6: We do not plan to go there. We do not want to go there. But if you have this option, mm-hmm. which allows you to keep civilian casualties to a minimum
12: Mm -hmm.
6: and you're really up against it isn't it easier i don't think that any decision to ever use a nuclear weapon could should be categorized as easy less difficult less difficult we can say that
4: russia is also developing low-yield weapons which this declassified cia document says could lower the threshold for first use of nuclear weapons the development of low-yield warheads that could be used on high-precision weapon systems would be consistent with Russia's increasing reliance on nuclear weapons. But increasing yeah, reliance percent. on nuclear weapons, Honestly, says Rear Admiral Perode, doesn't mean Russia is eager uh, to use them.
9: I don't perceive that they are, uh, have become madmen uh, with their fingers on the button, uh, but I do believe that they are more interested in considering how nuclear weapons could be used in conflict uh, to either
10: to either close a gap uh, or to sustain the opportunity for victory. So what what's the scenario? What situation would get them to seriously consider the use of nuclear weapons? That is probably the greatest question I'm trying to answer
9: today for Admiral Haney.
4: That's Admiral Cecil Haney, head of the U.S. Strategic Command, the man who would carry out a presidential order to launch a nuclear weapon.
11: Thank you. I appreciate the update.
4: Low-key and cerebral. Haney commands not only this country's nuclear forces, but its cyber weapons and space satellites as well.
11: Is it riskier today? Well, I think today. We're in a time and place uh, that I don't think we've been to before.
4: It is Haney's job to convince Vladimir Putin that resorting to nuclear weapons would be the worst mistake he could possibly make.
10: When you look at uh, what would work to deter Russia, do you have to get inside Putin's head?
11: You have to have a deep, deep, deep understanding of any adversary you want to deter, including Mr. Putin. So how would you describe him psychologically? Well, one, I would say I'm not a psychologist, but I would just say he is clearly an individual that is an opportunist. Does it concern you that an opportunist
10: has a nuclear arsenal?
11: It concerns me that Russia has a lot of nuclear weapons. It concerns me that Russia has uh, behaved badly on the international stage. And it concerns me that we have leadership in Russia at various levels that would flagrantly talk about the use of a nuclear weapon in this 21st century.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities, talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: Last year, Pablo Picasso's painting, The Women of Algiers, sold at Christie's for an art auction record of $179 million. In June, one of his Cubist works, Femme Assiz, went for over $63 million. So when a portfolio of 271 never-before-seen Picassos appeared in 2010, the art world was stunned. But the biggest surprise may be where they had been for nearly 40 years. Picasso's former electrician, 77-year-old Pierre Leganek, and his wife, Danielle, kept the art treasures in their garage, works they say were a gift from Pablo Picasso and his last wife, Jacqueline the Picasso family heirs don't believe it. They suspect theft. But the Luganecs stand by their story, and it's a story that has captivated the art world. Danielle and Pierre Luganec are a retired couple living in the south of France. Back in 1971, he was an electrician hired by Pablo Picasso and his wife Jacqueline to fix their American-made stove. The Picassos were so pleased... They had him do other odd jobs on their properties, including installing burglar alarms. How would you describe the relationship? Was it um, employee employer or did you have a friendship?
12: I believe that monsieur had total trust in me, particularly because of my discretion. His discretion might be the only thing in this tale that isn't in dispute.
5: As family electrician and handyman, Pierre Leganek had the run of Picasso's houses for 15 years, starting before and stretching beyond the artist's death in 1973. One day in the early 1970s, he says, Jacqueline Picasso surprised him.
12: Madame called me into the hallway and said, come here, this is for you. And she handed me a box. I said, thank you, madame. I left and bought it back here.
5: The Luganeks say they opened the box and weren't impressed. They described the contents as two Picasso sketchbooks and sheets of loose-leaf paper, all unsigned.
13: There were plenty of drawings that were repeated. For example, there was the body of a horse without the head. And the second part was only a head. Danielle Luganek says, in general,
5: she's not a big fan of Picasso's art.
13: There are paintings where I don't know if the character is looking at me, not looking at me. The head is upside down. It's on the side. That's what made him famous. I'm not saying it's ugly, but I don't like it.
5: So you didn't think much of this box of paintings and sketches and things that you received?
12: If someone would have told me, Monsieur Le Legenec, go and throw this in the fire, I would have thrown it in the fire. Instead of burning the box, Pierre
5: Le Legenec says it ended up on a shelf in his garage. It lived there undisturbed until 2010, when he says he was ill and facing surgery. That's when he thought he should get his affairs in order and wondered if that Picasso gift might be worth something. So he contacted the Picasso administration, run by Pablo Picasso's son, and described, by handwritten letters and photos, what he had. The Picasso administration is the only place in the world that can certify the artist's work. Leganek wanted his box of art authenticated.
12: They answered me by telling me that Claude Picasso wanted to see with his own eyes what it was we had, and he gave us an appointment. So we went up to Paris, my wife and I, by train, with a suitcase. Full of artwork. (laughs) Yes, I organized them properly in cardboard folders so it could be presentable.
5: How were you greeted by Claude?
12: He was a bit haughty. Impolite. He's a monsieur and we are little people. He
13: didn't even say hello.
12: Like little people.
13: He looked at me and said, you... You can see it over there. One cannot say we were welcomed. That's not very polite, considering he's the son of a genius.
5: Kind of snobbish, you say,
13: right? Yes. Yes, snob. A man
12: represents wealth.
5: But Claude Picasso himself, the artist's third child and one of five living heirs, remembers the meeting differently.
7: I start, you know, asking questions and so on. They said... They were given these things uh, by my father. Then later on, a little bit later on in the conversation, they said that some of them were given to them by my father's widow.
5: The stash contained works spanning more than 30 years, from 1900 to 1932. Some were preliminary sketches of well-known works displayed in museums and galleries around the world, like this one from 1932, Woman Seated in Red Armchair at the Musée Picasso in Paris, the similarity is striking. And then there's this one, a never-before-seen portrait of Olga, Picasso's first wife and constant subject for nearly 20 years. Included in the 271 works were six sketches, 28 lithographs, and nine cubist collages, considered museum quality. There were also those two full sketch pads with 81 drawings, an art trove later valued at as much as $100 million. Claude Picasso could not believe his eyes and did not believe the Luganex.
7: The, the explanations were a bit murky, but I quickly understood that they must have stolen them. Did you know immediately that they were real? Yes, but I didn't tell them that. You didn't want to give anything away? I couldn't because it was, so, it was so amazing. And they kept pulling out things more and more. More and more and more. So I said, is that all? And they said, no, 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 we have some more here. I said, oh, no, I like, that's incredible. And, and, but I, you know, I didn't say anything. It didn't reveal oh, anything on your oh, face. Oh, nice, how lucky. <laughs> Whatever, you know, some banality like this. And uh, I had to let them go because there's no system that can make me uh, clamp down on these possessions. You, you couldn't seize them. No, no. So you had to let so them you go. Let, you have to let them go. I knew what I had to do next. <laughs> called the police. Yes.
5: The police opened an investigation. Three weeks later, the gendarmes were at the Luganek door. They seized the works and
12: they seized the couple. We were taken into custody to Nice, my wife in one car and I in another. And I was held there for two days.
13: I spent one day in jail. I was devastated, so devastated that I've been seeing a psychiatrist. I am not over it. I can still see the jail cell. And I'd like to add, if I can use this language, it didn't just smell bad, it stank.
5: You don't believe they were kept in their garage for 40 years? No. Jean-Jacques Neuyer and Claudia Andrew. Lawyers representing the Picasso administration say the condition of the art is too pristine to have been kept on a shelf in a garage for almost 40 years. They don't buy any part of the Luganek story. Why not? It's impossible. It's impossible.
6: It has, it's a nonsense. And to be very frank with you, believe that Mr. Luganek is a swindler. The Luganeks
5: say they're honest people caught in a David and Goliath battle with the Picasso heirs, snooty art moguls who can't handle the idea that a modest family might be worthy of the artist's gift.
13: We are simple people. We love our home and our garden. We've never traveled.
5: They say that you folks were a little snobbish and perhaps looking down on them because they're just little people, simple people, they call themselves.
6: They play on that. It's pure manipulation. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's you the, don't the believe world. that
5: they are simple people? They are simple people. It's not a problem. Uh, uh, we, we believe that they play on this to try to obtain sympathy from the public. The family lawyers also question the meticulous language Pierre Luganek used to describe the works, which they say could only have come from an art expert. But the retired electrician denies the accusation. He says he wrote every word himself. These works by Picasso were deemed so valuable, they immediately were seized and brought here for safekeeping. One of the most secure places in the country, the Bank of France. This is the Fort Knox of France. The country's gold reserves are kept here, too. In February 2015, the Luganex went on trial. There wasn't enough evidence to prove they stole the art, so prosecutors charged them with possessing stolen property. Witnesses who knew Pablo Picasso and his wife Jacqueline testified it was impossible anyone would get such a generous gift from the master. Maya Picasso, the artist's second child, says it's entirely out of character for the father she lived with the first 20 years of her life. Mon père ne donnait.
13: My father gave He gave pretty easily, be it money or a sweater, if you were called, but giving away artworks? No.
5: Even more unlikely, she says,
13: was parting with his portraits of his first wife. There is a beautiful portrait of Olga when she was young. You know, love is something beautiful. And when you are living it and decide to draw it, it's more than a picture. So he would have never given something like that away. In his defense... Pierre Luganek presented this signed
5: gift. As evidence, his relationship with the Picassos was more than just doing odd jobs. The Picasso family says an autographed pamphlet is exactly the type of small gift he might have received from Pablo Picasso. It's a little brochure dedicated and signed by Picasso. And when he came, he gave this little brochure. See, Picasso knew me... (laughs) And his excuse to have all these works, which were obviously stolen, was that he had this little brochure. When Danielle Leganek took the stand, she insisted she had a close friendship with Jacqueline Picasso, claiming Madame Picasso considered the Leganek home a refuge from the pressures of being the wife and widow of the 20th century's best-known artist.
13: Jacqueline, personne... Jacqueline was a wonderful person who taught me a lot. Because she spoke so much about her husband, I got to know him. My friendship with Jacqueline lasted until the very end, 14 years of loyalty. I accompanied her to her final resting place.
5: Jacqueline, 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 she wrote to you quite often. Danielle Laganec keeps mementos of her relationship with the late Mrs. Picasso handwritten postcards she considers more valuable than a Picasso itself.
13: As I said in court, they may have taken away the works, but the most beautiful painting I ever had was my friendship with Jacqueline, and that is something they will never be able to take away. The story
5: of how the Luganex acquired these works remains a mystery. Were they a generous gift? Were they stolen? Much like Picasso's art, this tale is intriguing, abstract, and ultimately left to each of us to make sense of it all. In court, the Luganex were found guilty and given a two-year suspended sentence. They are appealing. If you had known then what you know now, would you have taken the artwork to Claude? She's a that.
12: If this had to be done all over again, well, monsieur, the box would have ended up in the chimney in the room right behind you there. In the mail this
5: week, viewers wrote about the first part of David Martin's story on the new Cold War, which we broadcast last Sunday and completed tonight. Some found the story disturbing. It is bad enough for us to be assailed daily with news of atrocities in the Middle East with murder and mayhem at home. Why have you added this lesson in Armageddon to our already worrisome lives? We also heard from a Navy veteran who wrote, For him and his fellow submariners on undersea patrol armed with nuclear missiles, not much has changed over the years. The Cold War never ended for the submarine force, are we really at the start of a new Cold War? No. This non-shooting war is just finally making it up to where all of you can see it. Again. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader,
8: Like that car right in your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too.